This evening I would like to speak about the foundations of happiness. One of the few things that is perhaps commonly agreed to be universal in life is that there is an interest in happiness that human beings share. And this interest in happiness can dominate our lives and yet we don't necessarily understand very well what it is that we seek when we seek happiness. And we can equally be rather unsure as to how it is cultivated or whereby it may be attained. It seems evident from looking at our lives that happiness is not something that we are simply entitled to by virtue of our birth. Because certainly we've all, I'm sure, had time and opportunity to see that it doesn't happen just quite that easily. And yet, we could neither say that its absence is something we are necessarily to blame for, that it's necessarily our fault that happiness is absent at times from our life, or perhaps predominantly. If we don't understand what brings about happiness, what are the conditions for its arising, then it seems that we are highly likely to fail in our seeking for it, unless we happen to be particularly fortunate and just run into it by accident on a street corner. So, the question that could be asked, what are the foundations of happiness? And in our awareness of wishing to be happy, and recognizing that this all too often is not the condition we find ourselves in. We might identify perhaps with a statement of Nyanaponika Thera, who was a, a Buddhist monk, wrote a wonderful book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, from which this quote comes. At one point there he says, this heart-mind is bound all over. And we might have a sense of what that means, to find our heart and our mind. And in the Buddhist language, these are really equated rather than divided as into two parts, but understood as being different elements and aspects of the same. This heart-mind is bound all over. And yet he goes on to say, this heart-mind is bound all over, and yet may win freedom here and now. The recognition of the of the absence of happiness, of freedom in our lives, and yet the possibility of it. It seems that the condition of our heart, our mind, our heart-mind, we could say, is incredibly important to us. It matters perhaps more than anything else. And yet we're not really taught. We haven't necessarily learned how it comes about to be in a condition that we are happy. Our Western education seems to spend a lot of time training our intellect, training our memory and certain very particular capacities of the mind. But it doesn't really address the whole question of consciousness and what it would mean to train our being, our way of living, in a way that really brought about well-being, that really conduced to happiness. The Dharma teachings which we are engaging in, which we are practicing here together, recognize 
three clear areas that we need to give attention to if we genuinely seek to be happy in life. And the first area that we give attention to is to look at the area of our actions in this world. To see that the way we act in our life has an effect on the condition of our mind. And it's a very direct and immediate connection. The Buddha was not very very enthusiastic about views and opinions and spent a lot of time suggesting people did not take fixed positions on on different uh, questions that might arise. But one thing he repeated very clearly and very frequently is there is a result of actions. The way we act in our life has an effect. And the quite clear relationship that is revealed if we examine is to see that when we act in ways that cause harm to others, we find ourselves experiencing pain ourselves. And the first foundation of happiness, of well-being, is to establish ourselves in a condition of non-violence, of non-harming, as a basis for peace, for well-being and inner happiness. Much of the, the difficult content of our minds the things that we can experience as particularly painful, as generating a sense of rather strong unhappiness, are often things to do with that which we have done, that we have later regretted, that we have felt sorry for in some way or another. And to really align our life with a sense of non-harming is to give ourselves an invitation to a, a state of being in which there is not the weight of guilt, which we perhaps abide in a quality of non-regret for the way our life has been, which isn't some state of pride or arrogance that one has done it perfectly or better than anyone else, but that one acknowledges one has done what one could as best as able to care for the well-being of other creatures in this world and equally to care for one's own well-being. And this foundation is actually a basis on which meditation rests and without which meditation is rather lacking in a stable foundation, a platform from which it can be built. And sometimes it's useful and worthwhile in our practice just for a moment or two to reflect a little in the way we live our lives. To what extent are they a contribution to the well-being of others? To what extent do they cause harm? And to what extent do we have a choice about that? On that foundation of non-harming, the second major area of attention that the Dharma teachings point us to is the area of meditation, the area of practice. And we could call it, as I used to when seeking to explain what I was spending large amounts of time doing to friends and family who didn't quite necessarily relate to this rather or apparently bizarre activity, I eventually came up with the formula to say, well, it's happiness training. That's what it is. Learning what it means to be happy. In a way, it seems surprising to think that we might train ourselves in that way. And yet there is a very clear training that does conduce to happiness and to well-being. And this is a training which we are engaging in here. 
to train the heart-mind is the foundation of liberating the heart-mind. And it's in some ways quite amazing how we or most people around us can go through so much, if not all, of our lives without ever really giving attention to the training of the mind and the heart. And just as when we grow up and learn to walk, it's not that we sort of grow up and we think, the moment I can balance on two feet, that's about all I need to do, and sort of stagger one way and then the other, bouncing into things and sort of stumbling over every single obstacle. No, we actually take some care with the walking. We're encouraged to. Learning to walk a straight line. And the image of learning to walk a straight line is one that one of my teachers in India used to used to refer to, to, to give a sense of what one is engaging in in the practice of coming back again and again to one place, to one moment, to one experience. That there's a sense of the way in which our mind, when we don't attend to it, when we don't care for it, it's so scattered, it's moving in so many directions, it's going from here to there to somewhere else and back again in a matter of moments, it seems. And in that, there's no steadiness, there's no balance. But by simply acknowledging that that's what's happening and coming back again and again, over time what we start to notice is that the mind steadies. The mind actually focuses and it develops a capacity to connect with just one moment, to connect with our chosen object of attention. And it may just be for a few breaths at a time initially. Or perhaps we feel even rather blessed and graced to have two consecutive breaths arise before our mind moves away. And yet even that, even that, is a deepening, is a cultivation of the capacity of mind to be still. And it's a little like as if we might walk into a darkened room with a torch in our hand. And we've got the torch sort of set on a very wide, diffuse beam. And we walk into the room sort of shaking it around, left and right, up and down. And in that darkened room there's all these obstacles and we need to move through the room rather quickly. And it might seem that if we wave the torch around a lot and don't actually hold it steady, we're going to bump into rather a lot of obstacles and possibly never find our way out of the room. So that, in a similar way, steadying the mind allows us to, it's like holding the light of awareness, the light of attention, in a way in which it actually reveals what it's pointing at, long enough for us to see it, to comprehend it. If we just allow it to enact that rather habitual scatteredness of moving from one thing to another, never really connecting with anything at all, then we don't really get a very clear picture of what's going on around us or within us. And in that, there's a a way in which we experience a fragmentation of our life because we're not actually connecting with anything at all. We're sort of skimming over the surface, not really meeting, not really touching, and not really being touched by our life. And equally unable to see clearly what our life is revealing to us, what it is showing to us. So that coming back again and again allows the heart-mind, the consciousness to steady, to still, to quieten. Not through an act of willpower, but through simply no longer giving fuel to the patterns and tendencies which make it so agitated, which make it so busy. 
there's really no peace in our life, no possibility of genuine and abiding happiness if we are completely at the mercy of our mind reacting and moving in relationship to every single stimulus, to every single experience that arises. There is an incredible and vast array of things which can and do go on. Sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations in our body, thoughts and emotions. All different flavors and colors and characteristics and combinations of those that can at times it seems assail us overwhelm us. And without some capacity to simplify and to connect with them one at a time, we don't ever find our way within the midst of that sensory input. We don't ever find a way to be at balance, to be still, to be steady. And so we learn to explore the process of wise attention in meditation, to look and see how does it serve us to pay attention rather than just letting it happen randomly to whatever happens to be making the loudest noise or the strongest impression upon us, which is what we tend to do habitually. We don't choose what is useful or wise. We just you know, go for the biggest and the brightest, and that's not always the most pleasant by any means. So just watching that tendency, we start to see that we perhaps have some choices. In this environment, we simplify it significantly so there isn't quite so much coming in. There isn't quite so much input. And then we start to be able to see a bit of space around what's going on. We can see that certain things give rise to certain responses. And we might actually recognize that this doesn't help, this doesn't serve us. And the, the, the language that we use in the tradition for this is called guarding the sense door. Rather than just allowing everything to be wide open and sort of like a um, I don't know, like a vacuum cleaner just sucking in everything that's coming at us and getting rather clogged up with the dust and the dirt and perhaps feeling that our bag's a little bit full and needs sort of emptying out. One actually doesn't do that so much. One notices what's going on and some things seem to have an effect on us in a way that doesn't actually serve us. There's a rather... I was just reflecting this uh, earlier this evening and... Uh, I'd been on a retreat for a few weeks just a little earlier in the year and in the hermitage wing, just as one is about to enter into the uh, the, uh, the hallway in the that main part of the uh, house, there's a cupboard there with clothing that's been left behind or donated by other retreatants and it's very interesting to notice as the days went by how the tendency in the mind was to wonder, I wonder if that nice sweatshirt that I'm hoping for has turned up and want to go and look in the cupboard and sort of rifle through the piles of clothes and how if I would walk through that passageway and look at the cupboard this whole movement of wanting and distraction and engagement and excitement could arise and yet if I would just walk through and just keep my attention rather focused perhaps on my feet or rather sort of you know in a blinkered vision not looking either side but straight ahead it didn't happen and it's rather interesting how simple that relationship is. Certain things touch us. Certain things push our buttons. Or they offer us something alluring, something tempting. And when we're in contact with them, it can just so easily set off this whole cycle of response, this whole pattern 
of movement of the mind. So to actually look and see what is it that starts to trigger and to stimulate those kinds of reactions. I mean, for all of us, the triggers will be different, perhaps quite individual and unique. But the pattern and the tendency, we'll all be able to see it, for sure. Some things that give rise to a sense of excitement, interest, grasping towards. Others that give rise more to a sense of aversion, pushing away, not wanting to have to deal with that experience in some way. And whenever we get caught in that movement of grasping towards or pushing away, backing off from, we actually find ourselves disconnecting from the present, losing that sense of focus and that quality and intimacy of relationship to where we actually are. So to see that we choose to attend to the breathing, not just because it's something somebody suggested as maybe an interesting sort of exercise, but because the breathing for most of us and much of the time provides a relatively neutral object. It doesn't generate a whole lot of busyness, or it doesn't have to. Sometimes, of course, it can if we think that we should be improving it or we're not doing it right or we want to breathe better. And easily we can find we project that tendency to seek improvement or to seek perfection onto our breathing. But left alone, the breath just rather simply comes and goes doesn't necessarily need to generate too much reactivity. And equally with our feet touching the ground, that simple act of walking consciously in contact with the experience. It's something that perhaps can provide a refuge for us away from the the triggers, from the sensitive points, the flashpoints perhaps, of what is going on around us. And a lot of the flashpoints that we notice, a lot of the things that arise are not necessarily in the particular experience, but in a concept we have associated with the experience. So, for instance, in myself, walking past the cupboard door in the um, the common clothes cupboard, it's not that the sort of the, the cupboard door has any particular sort of significance. It's the idea associated with it. There's something in there I want, maybe something like that. And often, you know, we can experience things that seem to trigger a lot of response. We might feel a sensation in our body, and it's got a hard and solid and dense sort of feeling. And that's what the experience is. But the association says, it's a blockage. This is serious. I've got to fix it. I've got to get rid of it. I've got to open it. I've got to do something with it. And again, this whole process of grasping and aversion can arise around an experience but it's actually around our association to the experience rather than just the simple sensation itself. So learning in the way we pay attention, what it serves us to pay attention to. To pay attention to the simple sensation, to know it just as it is. To notice that we might have a concept or an association that goes with it. And yet to see that just as a concept rather than to need to react to it is to pay wise attention, is to take care with the way that we are, it could be said, stimulating our consciousness. So when we experience, as we sometimes do, difficult or painful patterns of thinking, or states of emotion, and some of you have spoken about them in the groups, and we can see how they arise in our experience. We can't prevent them coming. 
We're not seeking after them. And yet when they're there, we need to attend to them. And what we habitually tend to do is get caught up in the story of them, thinking about what they have to do, where they came from, what we need to do about them, why somebody did this or didn't do that, and what I should have done that gave rise to this particular experience. And again, we become lost in it, disconnected. And yet, if we see that going on and simply name it for what it is, thinking or feeling, or perhaps the particular kind of thought or feeling that it is, and then bring our attention into our body to feel what it feels like when it's going on. In noticing that and connecting with that, we can actually stay present. We can actually stay connected. And it's not that we're pushing the experience away. We're finding a way to be with it that actually serves us in which we're not becoming lost in or overwhelmed by the experience. And so to see that we have choices like this, that we make unconsciously in every moment if we're not present. And in our unconscious choices, we find ourselves traveling down the path of grasping, of aversion, and disconnection. So that when we are actually present, we have a choice. We have the capacity to choose pathways that serve us. And in this way, the capacity to be present is an incredible foundation for choosing pathways of happiness, pathways of well-being. And we might look and reflect on what leads us in our unconscious patterns to react and to act in the way that it does. Very often, we have this view, we have this belief at some incredibly deep level that happiness will be found through controlling, through manipulating, through altering our sensory experience, through somehow making the way the world is or the way our inner life is the way I want it to be. We feel that perhaps if we could just get it right, it will offer us lasting satisfaction, pleasure, happiness and security. And to really look carefully to see if this is the way we are relating to our life. Because the third fundamental area, the third foundation of happiness is the realm of wisdom in which we need to understand truly what it is that moves us and what it is that serves us and to see where our views may not be in accord with the way things are. For all that we may at times experience pleasure and joy through experience and happiness indeed, there's a way in which no matter what the experience is, whether it be a pleasant relationship or a pleasant meal, a pleasant meditation, if we should be so lucky, whatever it is, it somehow doesn't seem to last forever. It certainly can't be guaranteed to be permanent. And we might have had a period of the meditation where we, fe we felt quite steady, quite connected, and it was something of a relief because it had been anything but that since, you know, up until that point. We think, ah, got here, this is it. Now my retreat is really going places. And then in the next sitting, we come in there sort of almost rubbing our hands, just can't wait to get back to that experience and something else arises. 
we notice that we're contracted in that grasping, in that wanting, that anticipation. And that there's an incredible lesson for us there to be learned. That no experience which arises for us can provide us lasting satisfaction because by its nature to arise, it is also its nature to pass. And we can check this out for ourselves. No need to take anyone else's word for it. Each breath that comes, goes. And in fact, I remember um, in the, uh, there's a, a book by a, a Zen master, Tofu Roshi, The Life and Letters of Tofu Roshi, and he, he recommends as a rather important part of one's meditation practice to, in fact, to ensure that the number of in-breaths equals the number of out-breaths, or else you'll actually get into quite a lot of difficulty, he, he, he suggests. And uh, fortunately for us, it seems that breathing seems to take care of that. One breath comes, then it leaves. We don't need to organize that. And yet, so often, we find ourselves relating to our life, to experiences, as though they may indeed be permanent as though they may indeed last forever, as though we could arrive at some place or condition or state of experience which having arrived, we would then be able to stay there. And yet look at what happens in that process when we see that movement of desire, that wanting for a pleasant experience. What happens when we get it? What happens when we actually get the pleasant experience? There's a a nice story about uh, Mullah Nasruddin who's a a sort of a, a teaching figure from the Sufi tradition. And it said once that Nasruddin was taking a, a large donkey load of grapes to the market. And all the young children of the village were coming up and saying, Nasruddin, Nasruddin, please give us some grapes. Give us some of those grapes. They look so sweet and lovely. We like to try your grapes. And so Nasruddin, being a, a kind fellow, gave them all one grape. And they all ate their grapes and said, Oh, can we have some more grapes? Or we'd, those are, we'd really like your grapes. Nasrin, can we have some more grapes? He says, no. Said, oh, don't be so mean, they said. You're so mean. Nasrin said to them, you know, after you've had one grape, you know exactly what all the other ones will taste like. Why do you want any more? But so often when we get what we want and we enjoy it, that's not an end, is it? We want some more. We want some more. I remember once on a retreat they served lasagna and it's one of my favourite meals. And I was relatively restrained and modest in the portion I took. It took quite some self-discipline at the time. Then I took it back to my place and I shoved that lasagna into my mouth just about as quickly as I could, mindfully, or at least (laughs) thinking I was trying to be mindful, hoping that I could finish it in time to get back and get some more before it was all gone. And of course, by the time I finished this plate full of lasagna, I actually found I was rather full. And I wasn't interested in it anymore. I hadn't actually enjoyed the one I was eating because I was busy thinking of the next one. And this tendency we have to want more, to want more and more and more, where does it end? Because it doesn't seem that it does end. It seems that movement of desire cannot be satisfied through simply giving ourselves the object of our desire. If anything, it strengthens that movement, that wanting. And we find in it 
that the movement of wanting itself is incredibly painful, incredibly difficult. And that's why we want to get the object. We want the thing we want so that we can stop having to want it. That's, that, that's what we're interested in, not the thing. It's so we can stop having to want it. But not long after we've eaten that piece of fruit that we might have wished for a banana at breakfast time and we've gotten it, the very next morning we still want another banana, just as much. Whatever it might be. And it's incredibly, incredibly powerful and common as an experience, this, this wanting. And the sense that if I get what I want, I'll be happy. And we shouldn't at all, I think, judge ourselves or hold it against ourselves for the fact that we do notice in our hearts and our minds this movement of wanting. I remember hearing a story from the Dalai Lama where he spoke about visiting a, uh, a monastery, a, a Catholic, I think, Trappist monastery where they, um, amongst the other industries, industries and activities, they produced cheese and, and cake. And he was taken on this grand tour of the monastery and he said, they keep offering me these pieces of cheese throughout the whole day, all these fancy pieces of cheese, you know, and all day I just wanted a piece of that cake. <laughs> and, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, being of great wisdom and compassion and letting go, and uh, seems equally prey to the mind at times of wanting. And yet to see that we can recognize that mind as the mind of wanting. We don't need to be carried away by, overwhelmed by it, or ruled by it. To see equally the mind of not wanting, and how that also is holding out to us the hope that if I can just get rid of what I don't like, if I just stop doing whatever it is, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be okay. But, you know, we start off maybe arriving on the first day as a lot of tiredness, weariness. We think, oh, if only I could stop being so tired. And then the next day, day two, we're not tired at all. We're kind of sort of sitting there wriggling on our cushion. And we don't really appreciate the fact that we're not tired anymore because there's something else we want to go away. Or we find we're facing some difficult or painful emotion and we just wish that it would not be there. Just wish so wholeheartedly it would go away. And then at some point later in the day it's not there and we're sitting there rather bored wondering, what do I work on now? What am I going to do? What's the point? Someone said rather wisely once, there is always something. One can reflect on it. There's always something that we can find that's wrong with the way things are. Because it's not in the way things are that the something is wrong. It's in the pattern, the tendency, and the habit to look for something wrong, to find it, and to say, that's the problem. To watch and attend very carefully to these patterns is an incredibly powerful part of what we're engaged in, incredibly useful, and yet incredibly difficult at times too, because we so easily get caught up and carried away by them. So we need to be aware, we need to be conscious, to be present in this moment is to notice perhaps that we are being carried away or to see as we start to come closer and closer and be more and more connected to each moment as it unfolds, we start to see those places where we might be about to be carried away, 
We're not necessarily always there. We might notice when we're a long way down the track. But we start to get a sense that maybe we can actually notice at the place where we're about to be borne away by that movement. And that movement, it offers and it promises us so much. And yet the movement of grasping or aversion inevitably leads us to a place that is so deeply unsatisfactory because it is disconnected from where we are, because it's no longer in touch. We've lost, become lost in the mind's reactivity. And so cultivating the capacity to simply observe, to stay steady, to be present with just what is arising, not carried away by it. And when we are carried away by it, to see that that has happened and begin again. And it can be useful. Sometimes we maybe give ourselves rather a hard time when we find that we have been carried away, that we have become lost again in thinking, in grasping, in aversion, whatever. In that moment that you realize that you're lost, in fact, what you've realized is that you were lost. You no longer are. In the moment that you're aware of what has been happening, you're present again. And you can actually take joy in that. One can actually honor that fact. Like, when you're not, when you're lost, and you don't even know you're lost, it's not a problem. You know, what's the problem? One isn't even conscious. And when we realize that we were lost, rather than reacting to that which is now the history of the, pr- of the past moment, or minutes, or perhaps a little longer, one can actually acknowledge the moment that one is in as a moment of presence, of clarity, of reconnection, and begin again from that place, honoring that capacity to wake up in this moment that is there, that comes, it seems at times unbidden, unexpected, and yet it comes, born of and supported by our intention to be present, to connect, And so we start to cultivate a relationship to our life and to our experience where we're not seeking to control it or to get it the way we want it to be, but that we actually explore what it means to open to, to connect with just the way it is. And, you know, if we needed any reminder that things don't always happen according to plan, we could just reflect on whatever might have been going through our minds as we waited, or those of you waiting for the dinner bell to ring for tea, and seeing the tea sitting there in the soup, perhaps getting colder and colder, and just wondering, well, what's going on here? Sometimes things don't happen according to plan. And our dear and hard-working managers... Okay, well, it seems Christine has already spoken with you about this, but... um, the manager's not managing to ring the bell in that moment for whatever reason. And yet, sometimes structure that we come to rely on, that we think, well, at least we can rely on the schedule and the bell. And yet, not even that. No guarantees in this life. And no guarantees as to what arises in our mind. 
and yet what we can start to trust, what we can start to rest our faith and our heart upon, is our capacity to be present and to connect with it, to not necessarily be overwhelmed and carried away by our reactions. That the, to understand that the transformation of our relationship to our experience is that which transforms our life, rather than the control or the manipulation of our experience itself. So learning to connect, learning to meet our experience with a sense of an open-heartedness, an interest in the sense of inquiry as Christina was speaking of last night, and equally a sense of real warmth and kindness in the quality of the attention that we bring to our moment-to-moment experience. There's a, a little sign that Some of you may have seen at someone's house. I first came across it at my grandmother's little apartment in in Calcutta in India. My grandmother is Bengali. And I was visiting her for the first time, I guess around 10 years ago. And there was just this little sign inside the doorway that expressed, I thought, rather beautifully the quality one might bring in meditation. And it said, Hail, guest. We asked not what thou art. If friend, we greet thee hand and heart. If stranger, such no longer be. If foe, our love will conquer thee. And rather, sort of quaint old English in the language there. But I thought a rather beautiful expression of that sense when things come to us that perhaps we might regard as friends, that that are maybe easeful, beautiful, supportive. Of course we can enjoy them, receive them, connect with them. We don't have to push them away fearing that somehow they're wrong and they don't fit in with some sort of austere meditative practice and sort of keeping one's face with the mouth corners turned down um, or some vision that we might have of sort of self-mortification. That we can actually connect with those things that we might regard as friends in life. And yet equally that we can meet things that are strangers to us, unfamiliar experiences that might arise. And often the tendency in meeting the unfamiliar is we have some degree of suspicion, some degree of fear. And yet meditation is again and again an invitation to meet, to enter into and to explore the unfamiliar and the new. And in the meeting, through the very quality of connecting with that experience, that which was a stranger to us, unfamiliar, perhaps threatening, is no longer so, is transformed by our willingness to connect with it. And equally those things that arise for us that are difficult, that are painful, and they do come, they do arise. Experiences in the body, patterns of thinking in the mind, and movements in the heart that we find difficult to be with, perhaps difficult to bear. To actually bring a sense of kindness softness and caring to them, to those experiences, is to allow ourselves to connect with them. All too often we react to the difficult, to the painful in life by pushing it away. And that pushing creates a sense of separation, a sense of disconnection 
in our inner life where in some ways our heart starts to stand apart from itself from parts of our being from other people in life and learning to just on a moment to moment level connect with just one thing even though it might be difficult or painful with a sense of kindness with a sense of care is to start to heal that separation is to allow ourselves to be connected to our life connected on a moment to moment level to what is actually true The movement to push away that sort of resists or contracts in relationship to the difficult experience often leads us to feel that it's the experience itself that's causing so much suffering because the movement to push it away comes so quickly and so habitually that we almost can't separate the two. But to see, to look, to notice that there is the experience itself, it may be sadness, it may be grief or loss, maybe loneliness or whatever regret and just notice the experience and then notice the relationship that we have to it how often that relationship is one of saying no I will not I cannot I shall not allow this to be here I shall not allow myself to feel it to be touched by it And that very pressure on the experience is what actually creates the separation and is really the fundamental and the most significant element of the suffering we experience in that moment, in that condition. So to understand that the arising of the difficult or the painful in itself does not necessarily mean suffering that if we bring a willingness to feel, to touch, to connect with it to that experience then yes, there can be pain yes, there can be difficulty but the sense of struggle, the sense of suffering the feeling that happiness is not possible while this is present that no longer has such solidity and we start to sense that that quality of attention that we bring is incredibly powerful is incredibly transforming profoundly transforming of our life of our experience and in this we learn again and again to let go of our pushing away to let go of our grasping and sometimes it's useful to think of it in terms of actually letting go of that which we grasp towards to see that actually getting hold of the object of grasping isn't really going to serve us that much just to let it go and where there is something difficult arising and we find aversion or resistance, reactivity to just let it be to just let it be and trust and trust in our own capacity to hold that moment to be present in that experience Ajahn Chah once said do everything with a mind that lets go 
Let go a little and you will have a little peace. Let go a lot and you will have a lot of peace. Let go completely and you will know complete peace. (coughs) So the practice of letting go, born of wisdom, this is the foundation, the the third foundation of happiness which our practice invites us to cultivate. To see that when we often we often have the view, the belief, that when our mind stops doing all these trips and stops laying all these numbers upon us, then I'll be peaceful, then I'll be happy. Now, it may be that we may have that experience at times. It may be not. But happiness or peace is not dependent upon the absence of activity in the mind. It's much more to do with whether we can recognize it for what it is and respond to it wisely and skillfully. To see that when our mind is not in the grip of grasping, of aversion, and that doesn't mean it's not arising, but that we're not identified with it, we're not enacting it. We can simply recognize it for what it is. When the mind is not in that grip, in that grasp, there's a a way in which we start to sense rather quietly, rather simply, a richness and a quality and texture to the present moment that touches us rather deeply. We start to sense that happiness is found in our capacity to abide here and now, to be present in a way that's deeply and authentically connected to just what is happening in this moment, not seeking other than what is here, with us right now. Can we just sit quietly for a minute or two, please? May all beings live with kindness. May all beings live with attentiveness. 
May all beings realize the happiness of the present moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.